Come on. Welcome to Money Savage, a savage approach to personal finance. This is George Grombacher, and the time is right. Welcome to today's guest, the strong and powerful Jennifer Moss. Jen, are you ready to do this? I am. I'm looking forward to it. Excellent. Let's do this. Jen is the co-founder of Plasticity Labs. She is a happiness consultant, a best-selling author of Unlocking Happiness at Works. At work, she writes for the Harvard Business Review, the HuffPost. She's a frequent and sought-after speaker. She was the recipient of the National Public Service Award from the office of President Obama. No big deal on that one, Jen. <laughs> Definitely excited to have you on. Um, Tell us a little bit about your personal life, some more about your work, and why you do what you do. Well, I am what we call an accidental entrepreneur. It was not something that I had anticipated. I was working in Silicon Valley, and uh, and a life-changing moment came, um, it, like as it always does, abruptly and sharply into our lives. And what we realized from that uh, from that moment that um, – that could have devastated my husband and I because he became acutely paralyzed after being a pro athlete that um, we had over the years developed quite a bit of psychological fitness and, um, and really used a lot of the the skills of, of happier people that led us to have a post-traumatic growth moment versus a post-traumatic stress moment. And when we analyzed how he went from acutely paralyzed to walking out of the hospital after six weeks, it was that that experience that motivated us to want to know more. Both of us moved back to Canada, started to study uh, positive psychology, and uh, and what we came up with was a, a realization that many people, unfortunately, only thirteen percent of the entire global workforce is happy at work. And because we spend 90,000 hours there in our lifetime, we felt like that was a massive problem to be solved. And that's really where plasticity was born, the concept of neuroplasticity and our ability to wire and rewire our brains for optimal performance and health and happiness. And flash forward now seven years, and we've been working at this for a while. It's gone in lots of different directions, but, but here we are now doing the work and the research and using data and technology and uh, and really trying to create a momentum shift in the workplace around happiness and, and the importance of it for employees' health and happiness. Awesome. Um, as so often is the case, um, you very eloquently stated about, I'm sorry, it, it was post-traumatic or post-traumatic growth. Uh, post-traumatic growth versus post-traumatic stress. I've never heard that term before. I think it's awesome. Um, but you were able to take a, a, to what I can only imagine is terrifying and horrible experience and turn it into a, turn it into a really, really positive thing. So I, I commend you for that. I remember the first time I learned about neuroplasticity and how you are able to, to form new sort of grooves in your brain. But if you would, could, could you just take a second and explain how that works to people and how it's actually possible? Yes, we have this capacity in our brain to wire and rewire our, our, 
actions, essentially our daily actions to form these desire paths in our brain so that our subconscious mind can help us take over as we're contending with um, managing all of uh, the, the, the conscious thoughts. Um, and so how we do that is just by repeating our behaviors and turning habit, those habits or those actions in, into habits and then turning those habit, habits into, into to behaviors. So it's going from a state into a trait. For example, if you look at practicing cognitive gratitude, if you think about where gratitude is formed in the brain, it's similar to how a language is formed in the brain. And when we're, you know, we're placing young people into uh, into developing their language skills, we immerse them. In Canada, we have French, what we call French immersion. And so little kids as young as three will start practicing French by being immersed in French. So the teachers will only talk to them in French. And so over time, what happens is they stop translating from their mother tongue into French, but they start thinking in French. So their subconscious takes over. They've wired these patterns over time to be able to just think in French instead of uh, translating from English to French. So the same thing happens as we develop these behaviors of positive psychology, like hope and efficacy and gratitude, fluency and, and empathy, etc. We practice them over time. We immerse ourselves in it. We do we do practice it every day. And then over time, we go from practicing cognitive empathy or practicing cognitive gratitude into being empaths or being grateful people. And so that's the, the power of neuroplasticity. And our brain has about 40% uh, um, sort of allowability of us, uh, uh, workability for us to be able to train that part of the brain. There is a genetic predisposition, you know, to be happier or, or less happier, but there is this 40% that's malleable where we can rewire our thoughts and behaviors to actually become happier, higher performing and healthier people. Got it. And that's such a powerful thing. Um, you talked about how only 13% of people are, are happy at work. So I, and uh, that's, that's such a crazy and sad statistic um, and it's, it's, it's a lot to kind of try to get your brain around. Is this as simple as people need to make a choice to be happier and then to rewire their brains to doing that? Or is that too simplistic? Well, I think it would be disingenuous for me to say it's just all about choice. There's so many different pieces of that puzzle that have to come together. You need to, in an organization, as an employer, have the, the proper uh, hygiene, we call it. So that means you need to be building trust. You need to be paying people what they deserve to be paid. You, you know, you need to have the, the ability for them to um, be able to communicate to you and have upward feedback. All of that the hygiene stuff still needs to be put into place inside of organizations. And there's places where that's very difficult in, in parts of the world, that is very difficult for us to be able to ask employers um, to do. Uh, it's not that we can't ask them to do. It's just not that they're ready or enthusiastic about doing that. And then, um, and then also it has to be, you know, we need to have uh, policies put into place for that um, environment to be open for employees to be able to choose happiness. 
However, we do have, you know, um, an issue with sort of this expectation at work of our employer to take care of everything for us. There's entitlement issues that run across the gamut inside of organizations where it's all about my employer needs to retain me at all costs. And that means every single perk and every single expectation. And what happens when we start to rely on our employers to make us happy, we aren't ever happy because happiness really is an intrinsic um, emotion. So when those two pieces come together, when you have employees making decisions about their own well-being and happiness outside of the workplace and inside the workplace. And then you have employers that meet employees where they're at by providing them the right you know, environment to be successful. That's when you really see rocket fuel inside of an organization. That's where you see the, you know, the Googles take off and the LinkedIn's and the Virgins and the organizations that are the most powerful and successful because they have the right recipe. Um, but it is disingenuous to just say in any organization, in any part of the world, if you just choose it, you will be happy at work. No doubt about it. All right. So the stage is set that the, the companies put the right pieces in place to make happy employees possible. You have an employee who maybe was not necessarily happy, but they make a decision. You know what? I I. I I'd like to be happier, and I'm I'm ready to to engage in this process. What's next? Well, when you have uh, the the readiness, then you're in a great state. And one of the, the ways to get ready for employers is what we really are, are really trying to promote is uh, is gathering data and asking questions and finding out what actually motivates your employees. Uh, what Google does really well is ask and years they spent on project Aristotle where they were asking, you know, what essentially motivates you. And they started to look at the top 180 highest performing or teams inside their organization. And what they found were these two components of a highly successful team. And that was um, conversational turn-taking and emotional sensitivity. So just psychological safety inside of meetings to be able to share what you feel. And, um, and just knowing that, everyone around the table had the same amount of time to share what their, you know, share their ideas, share their innovations and, and be able to be creative together. And so it didn't boil down to how fast you could code or what your education was. It really was these, these characteristics of psychological safety. And so what I recommend and what are, what we recommend in the research is ask the questions because what we found across all of the data and we work with, you know, we work with startups, we work with banks, we work with companies like Lululemon and, you know, all different types. And what we found is that motivator for each employee is very different. Plus, inside of certain teams, you have different demographics. A marketing personnel would be much different than an, a demographic of engineers or software developers. So you really do need to get to the small data. You need to have smaller teams. You need to look at your teams as tribes. You need to provide autonomy to those managers to be able to ask the right questions and get to what motivates them and then be able to execute on that learning. And then once you are able to gather that as a manager in your teams, then you can start really creating very uh, specialized and individualized programs for each person. You know, working parent versus a millennial without um, a home or 
a car to pay for. They're two different types of people and they're motivated by two different types of things. So you, we really have the capacity now with data to get to the small, the small learnings about people. And then what we need to do is engage that learning. If you're a really good manager, that's what you do. I think that, that makes a lot of sense. Is an organization ever too big or too small to do this? An organization is is too big when it doesn't create smaller tribes inside their organization and empower those tribes. Okay. So your best, you know, most successful companies are under a hundred. So if you think about that and they have teams inside of that hundred, you know, the most successful groups are really teams of six. You've seen some organizations, some really um, high-performing, forward-thinking companies actually do that. They create sort of teams of six and they don't necessarily have a manager in that group. They just have a senior person who has been identified as a person who works well with people and they can still be an individual contributor because managers don't necessarily need to um, be a manager just because they've worked so long, you know, X amount of years at a company and then they become a manager. That doesn't always work well for both the organization or the manager or the employee who really loves the work that they do. But we feel like promotion has to equate to a sort of executive leadership. And, and that shouldn't be the case. If we, we know that someone is really strong as an individual contributor, we should allow them to continue to do that, but give them seniority still. And then those people that are just excellent people leaders should be moved into those positions because they're really good at that. It's a skill set to be a leader. So being able to identify that, making small groups, um, and you can be a team of 60,000 people and still be able to create smaller teams within that giant org. And that's when you really see it work well, um, is if you can create these micro cultures inside of a larger organization. It's challenging. I have to tell you, it's very challenging. We work really hard on trying to figure that out. And I don't think we've got it perfectly right yet. Um, but we're seeing early success with the, that way of thinking about it. That's awesome. And that, that again, makes, makes a lot of sense. Um, so let's just go through a scenario that, that we spent a lot of time working on our 100 person organization and we feel like we we've we've really had an impact with all of our employees and everybody's is feeling pretty pretty solid and 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 for lack of a better term happy um what kind of maintenance or what kind of ongoing um training or meetings should should we be doing there are so many tactics and and we'd really talk about what needs to be employed in your group or your organization that makes sense for you because some will some tactics will come off disingenuous and then others won't. It depends really on the appetite and the openness inside your organization and really what your culture is um, open to. But um, there are there is a need to be ingraining and engaging these actions every single day. And so that might seem impossible, right? How do we engage tactics every single day and work on culture every single day? Well, the thing is, is that if you really go back to what we're trying to build, it's just, you know, old school grandma's rules or, you know, human humanity should really be at the, the right. core. It's not hard. It's simple things like, you know, and I suggest the, this in my talk where I say, everyone now just get out your phone, send a thank you text to someone that takes 
10 seconds and then put a calendar reminder meeting to thank someone every week on Friday at two o'clock, make a meeting with yourself for three minutes and send a thank you out to someone, you know, creating habits, um, having the ability for a, um, a meeting where, uh, you have certain people that talk and certain people that aren't allowed to talk, uh, creating that space where that rotates and you become the person that listens. That's creating empathy. Um, start to have walking meetings instead of sitting down meetings. Uh, go and do one hour a week where you take a meeting that is a, a standard meeting and walk and talk. You can, instead of emailing someone once a day, that lives and works right next to you, get up and talk to that person face to face, get on a call instead of using Facebook or um, a text, actually go and meet someone in a business meeting uh, at a coffee shop and talk to them and meet with them. So there's lots of uh, reasons why we're becoming disengaged with each other. And, and technology plays a big part in that. It's it's replacing relationships instead of augmenting them. So we need to start augmenting our relationships through technology and not replacing them by actually speaking with a person face-to-face and shaking their hand and engaging with them. So they're simple tools. It could be creating a gratitude wall where every day you go and post what you're grateful for about someone in the office. Um, and it can even be just once a week where you have this gratitude wall that starts to grow and becomes a priming installation inside your, your, comp- your office. I mean, again, these are all simple tactics that can become habits that turn into sustainable behaviors and the culture of the work that um, are the workplace. I, I love that so much, just talking about simple tasks that can become habits that then become behaviors. It's such a real thing. Um, and definitely, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about where people can find you here in a second, but um, I think that on your website, it's like the world's largest gratitude wall, so everybody should go check that out because it's very, 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 very cool. So. Yes, we have 11,000 notes on that wall, and uh, and we continue to add to it. We attempted the Guinness Book of World Records this year and beat the attempt. So it's, uh, we do things really big on the gratitude side, but it creates the most incredible culture when you just thank someone. And, and when you read what actually makes people grateful is pretty cool. Yeah, I love it. Well, Jen, Savage Nation is ready for your difference-making tip. What do you have for them? I would say the one takeaway that I'd like people to live with is simple actions, complex benefits, and that we are not too old and we don't need to be, um, you know, serious to be responsible. We can be productive at work and be happy at work and have fun at work. And uh, it will actually lead to probably the most high performing time in your entire career. Well, that is great stuff that definitely gets a come on. Come on. So Jen, thank thank you so much for coming on. Where can Savage Nation learn more about you? Where can they get a copy of your book? They can get a copy of my book at Amazon or at Indigo or Chapters, any one of the the stores. They can get it there. If it's not in, you can request it. And um, you can also find me at plasticitylabs.com. Excellent. Well, Savage Nation, if you enjoyed this as much as I did, show Jen your appreciation and share today's show with a friend who also appreciates good ideas. Get a copy of her book, and I will list where you can find those in the notes of the show as well as where you can find Jen. So thank you again, Jen. 
Thank you. It was great chatting with you. Really great questions. I enjoyed myself. Excellent. And until next time, keep fighting the good fight because we are all in this together. What's up, Savage Nation? Please support the show by subscribing, leave us a review, and definitely feel free to share us with somebody you think would like it. Come on!